Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi everyone, this is Paul Frank. Today we'll be discussing case 19, Coronary Artery Bypass Grafting, from our textbook, Anesthesiology and Critical Care Morning Report, Beyond the Pearls. Our patient is a 71-year-old male with exertional angina who is presenting for coronary artery bypass grafting, cabbage. Coronary artery catheterization shows high-grade stenosis of the left anterior descending artery, the left circumflex artery, and the right coronary artery. The patient had a myocardial infarction 10 years ago and he had a drug-eluting stent placed in his left anterior descending artery at that time. He takes aspirin, metoprolol, and atorvastatin daily. In the preoperative area, his vital signs are blood pressure 153 over 80 millimeters of mercury, pulse 72 beats per minute, respiration 10 breaths per minute, oxygen saturation 99% on room air, and temperature 35.9 degrees Celsius. What are the major arteries of the heart? The aorta, at the level of the sinuses of Alsalva, gives off the left main coronary artery and the right coronary artery. The left main coronary artery gives rise to the left anterior descending artery and the left circumflex artery. The right coronary artery gives off the posterior descending artery in the majority of patients. When the posterior descending artery arises from the right coronary artery, this is known as right dominant coronary circulation. Conversely, If the posterior descending artery arises from the left circumflex artery, this is known as left-dominant coronary circulation. What echocardiographic changes would you expect in the territory of the heart where the myocardial infarction, the MI, occurred 10 years ago? Well, there may be altered movement of the affected myocardial territory. This can be described as hypokinesis, akinesis, or dyskinesis. In hypokinesis, the affected myocardium still contracts inward during systole, but its movement is less than that of healthy myocardial tissue. In akinesis, the affected myocardium does not contract inward during systole. In dyskinesis, the affected myocardium patches outward during systole. Beyond altered movement, we may notice that the affected myocardial territory may be thinner than the healthy myocardium. Additionally, the affected myocardium may not thicken at all during systole. Finally, 
thrombus may form over affected myocardium, particularly if there has been a scar formed. What are the potential complications of MI? The potential complications of MI vary depending on the time since the infarction as well as the location and extent of MI. Within the first two days after MI, ventricular arrhythmia is the most common cause of death. Involvement of the cardiac conduction system can lead to bradycardia or heart block. Several days after MI, mechanical complications, in other words, compromise of the physical integrity of cardiac structures, become more common. Examples of mechanical complications include free wall rupture, papillary muscle rupture, or ventricular septal defect. These can lead to acute heart failure or pericardial tamponade. Several weeks after MI, the affected myocardial territory can dilate. Why is this patient taking aspirin? What is the mechanism of action of aspirin? In this patient who has a history of coronary stent, aspirin reduces the risk of instant thrombosis. Aspirin is an irreversible inhibitor of the cyclooxygenase enzyme. This inhibits platelet function and reduces the risk of instant thrombosis. Should the patient take his metoprolol on the morning of surgery? Yes. In fact, administration of a beta blocker on the morning of surgery for patients undergoing cabbage is a closely tracked quality metric. What are the determinants of myocardial oxygen supply? The two determinants of myocardial oxygen supply are arterial blood oxygen content, CaO2, and coronary blood flow. Arterial blood oxygen content is determined primarily by hemoglobin concentration and oxygen saturation although dissolved oxygen tension also plays a smaller role. Coronary blood flow is determined by coronary perfusion pressure and coronary vascular resistance. How is coronary perfusion pressure calculated? Well, as with all liquids, blood flows from areas of high pressure to areas of low pressure. In coronary blood flow, blood flows from the aortic root through the coronary arteries. Therefore, there must be a gradient between the aortic root and the coronary arteries in order for blood to flow. It is important to remember that the pressure within each cardiac chamber is transmitted to the walls and the nearby coronary arteries. Therefore, left ventricular perfusion pressure is given by the diastolic pressure in the aortic root minus the left ventricular end diastolic pressure. In other words, the left ventricle is only perfused during diastole, and the reason is this. During systole, the left ventricular systolic pressure is equal to or greater than the systolic blood pressure in the aortic root, and there is therefore no driving force driving blood down the coronary arteries at that time. Unlike the left ventricle, the right ventricle is perfused during systole and during diastole, except in cases of extreme pulmonary hypertension. What are the determinants of myocardial oxygen demand? Myocardial oxygen demand increases with heart rate, contractility, and wall stress. Wall stress is directly proportional to intracavitary pressure and to chamber radius. Wall stress is inversely proportional to wall thickness. This relationship is described in the law of Laplace. The implication of the law of Laplace is that wall stress increases with increases in preload and with increases in afterload. What special anesthesia setup is required for a cardiac case? Of course, we always start with the American Society of Anesthesiologists, the ASA standard monitors. Beyond that, we use a 5-lead electrocardiogram. 
we generally place invasive monitoring lines, including an arterial catheter, a central venous catheter, and possibly a pulmonary artery catheter, also known as a Swan-Gans catheter. It's also important to have hemodynamic medications immediately available. You should have an inotrope, such as epinephrine or dobutamine, a vasopressor, such as norepinephrine or vasopressin, a vasodilator, such as clavidipine or nitroglycerin, an anticholinergic agent, such as atropine, and an antiarrhythmic agent, such as amiodarone. Additional setup includes a transesophageal echocardiogram machine and probe, cerebral oximeters, a syringe of intravenous heparin, at least 300 units per kilogram of body weight, an antifibrinolytic agent, such as aminocaproic acid, transcutaneous defibrillation pads, blood products, and a temporary external pacemaker box. When should the arterial catheter be placed? The arterial catheter should be placed prior to induction of anesthesia, with the patient still awake. And the reason is this. Induction and laryngoscopy can cause sudden hemodynamic changes, and it may become necessary to treat these changes acutely. Induction of general anesthesia can cause hypotension. Subsequently, laryngoscopy and intubation can cause hypertension and tachycardia. Depending on the patient, it may be safe to give a small dose of benzodiazepine or other sedative prior to placement of the arterial line. However, since the patient is awake, it is always good practice to infiltrate the area where the arterial line will be placed with local anesthetic first. What are the contraindications and risks of arterial line placement? Contraindications include lack of collateral circulation, infection or burn at the proposed insertion site, and the presence of an intravascular stent or synthetic vascular material. In particular, as it relates to coronary artery bypass grafting, the surgeon may harvest radial artery from the patient's non-dominant hand for use as a bypass graft. Therefore, it is important that you have a conversation with the surgeon confirming whether or not this is part of their plan and to place the arterial line in the contralateral radial artery. Complications of arterial line placement include thrombosis, distal ischemia, infection, bleeding, and arterial dissection. Where can an arterial line be placed? The radial artery is the most common insertion site. Other potential insertion sites include the ulnar artery, the brachial artery, the axillary artery, the femoral artery, the dorsalis pedis artery, and the posterior tibial artery. How is a radial arterial line placed? After obtaining consent from the patient, secure the patient's wrist in the supinated and extended position. Apply a sterile prep solution and a sterile drape to the volar surface of the wrist. Using palpation or ultrasound, identify the radial artery. Infiltrate the skin and subcutaneous tissue overlying the radial artery with local anesthetic, usually 1% lidocaine. Next, insert the needle and catheter into the skin over the radial artery at an angle of approximately 30 degrees or less to the horizontal, aimed proximally. Once the tip of your needle is in the radial artery, there will be blood return through the needle. At this point, you have two options. Option A, hold the needle still, thread the guide wire through the needle, advance the catheter over the guide wire into the artery. Option B, continue advancing the needle and the catheter until there is no longer return of blood. At this point, your needle has gone through and through the back wall of the artery. Next, remove the needle and slowly withdraw the catheter until there is once again return of blood through the catheter. Next, thread the guide wire through the catheter into the artery, advance the catheter 
into the artery. Once you've performed either option A or option B, remove the guide wire, attach the transducer cable, and secure the catheter with either a tegaderm or a suture. What are the hemodynamic goals for induction and intubation for this patient? Our goals here are to maintain adequate myocardial oxygen supply and to minimize myocardial oxygen demand. During induction of anesthesia, our goal is to maintain the afterload when there is ordinarily a decrease in afterload caused by a drop in systemic vascular resistance. During laryngoscopy and intubation, our goal is to avoid tachycardia. To accomplish both of these goals, we should have a short-acting beta blocker such as esmolol and a short-acting vasopressor such as phenylephrine immediately available. Fentanyl can be administered several minutes prior to induction and will blunt the tachycardic response to laryngoscopy. If you're giving propofol or atomidate, give it slowly. Remember, you can always give more, and you don't want to drop the pressure. Once the patient becomes apneic, manually ventilate to avoid hypercapnia and hypoxia. Mask ventilation with anesthesia gas after the patient is asleep will further blunt the patient's tachycardic response to laryngoscopy. And remember, always watch the blood pressure and heart rate. There is a reason we place that arterial line before induction. Induction and intubation are uneventful. You insert the transesophageal echo, TEE probe, and you notice that the anterior wall of the left ventricle is hypokinetic. What coronary artery supplies this territory? The anterior wall of the left ventricle is supplied by the left anterior descending artery. The left anterior descending artery also supplies the anterolateral papillary muscle and the anterior two-thirds of the interventricular septum. The left circumflex artery supplies the lateral left ventricular wall and also the anterolateral papillary muscle. The right coronary artery, including the posterior descending artery in patients with right dominant coronary circulation, supplies the right ventricle, the inferior one-third of the interventricular septum, and the posterior medial papillary muscle. After sternotomy and harvesting of the bypass grafts, the surgeon asks for heparin to be administered and you give heparin 300 units per kilogram intravenously. What will you need to do next? Three to five minutes after heparin administration, draw a sample of blood to measure the activated clotting time, ACT. This is effectively a measure of the anticoagulant effect of heparin. Adequate ACT for cardiopulmonary bypass is 400 seconds or greater. What is cardiopulmonary bypass? Cardiopulmonary bypass is an extracorporeal, in other words, outside of the body, circuit that facilitates continued blood flow and continued oxygen delivery throughout the body, even in the absence of cardiac and pulmonary function. Essentially, the circuit is this. Blood goes from central veins to a venous cannula to the cardiopulmonary bypass machine to an arterial cannula and to the aorta. So let's break it down. Venous blood is drained via one or more large venous cannulas placed in the superior or inferior vena cava and or the right atrium into a large reservoir bucket at the cardiopulmonary bypass machine. The cardiopulmonary bypass machine has many functions. It will heat or cool the blood, add oxygen, remove carbon dioxide from the blood, and add anesthesia gas to the blood. It will also pressurize the blood and then return it to the patient via the arterial inflow cannula, most commonly placed in the ascending aorta. After the aortic cross clamp is applied, cardioplegia solution is administered intermittently into the aortic root or into the coronary arteries directly, both considered antegrade, 
or via the coronary sinus, which is considered retrograde. Additionally, a small catheter is sometimes placed in the left ventricle to keep the left ventricle empty, thereby minimizing myocardial oxygen demand. This small catheter is known as a left ventricular vent. Which cannula is placed first? The arterial cannula, usually in the ascending aorta, is placed first. What are your hemodynamic goals during arterial cannulation? You want to maintain a systolic blood pressure less than 110 millimeters of mercury or a mean arterial pressure less than 70 millimeters of mercury. The risk of aortic dissection from cannulation increases with higher blood pressure. Placement of the arterial cannula is uneventful. During placement of the venous cannula in the right atrium, the blood pressure suddenly drops to 65 over 40 millimeters of mercury. What's going on? The surgeon is likely compressing the heart during placement of the venous cannula. During this time, it is important to watch the field closely and communicate with the surgeon if any of their maneuvers cause a sudden drop in blood pressure. The surgeon stops pressing on the heart and the blood pressure normalizes. The venous cannula is placed and the ACT is 460 seconds. What happens next? The surgeon will remove clamps from the cardiopulmonary bypass tubing and the perfusionist will start the cardiopulmonary bypass pump. Blood will then start flowing through the circuit. As the flow through the circuit increases, you will notice that the arterial waveform will become less pulsatile and almost flat. It's important to remember that flow through the cardiopulmonary bypass machine is non-pulsatile. You will also notice that end tidal carbon dioxide levels on the ventilator will decrease. Remember, measurement of end tidal carbon dioxide is based on delivery of blood through the lungs. During cardiopulmonary bypass, as the name implies, there is no flow through the pulmonary circulation to the lungs. The surgeon places the aortic cross clamp and asks for cardioplegia to be administered. What is cardioplegia and why is it necessary? Cardioplegia causes cessation of mechanical and electrical cardiac activity. It provides a still surgical field and minimizes myocardial oxygen demand. Remember, once the aortic cross clamp is applied, the heart does not receive oxygenated blood. Therefore, it is critical to reduce myocardial oxygen demand as much as possible. Most cardioplegia solutions contain a high concentration of potassium, which depolarizes myocardial cells. This reduces myocardial oxygen consumption by up to 90%. After a full dose of cardioplegia, there is still electrical activity on the rhythm strip. What's going on? In bad coronary artery disease, blockages of the coronary arteries can limit the flow of cardioplegia just as they limit the flow of blood. This can be overcome by administering cardioplegia retrograde through the coronary sinus. In the case of aortic regurgitation, cardioplegia given into the aortic root will flow backwards across the aortic valve and into the left ventricle and not into the coronary arteries. This can be overcome by administering cardioplegia directly into the coronary os, known as intracoronary cardioplegia, or retrograde into the coronary sinus. The electrical activity on rhythm strips stops after a dose of retrograde cardioplegia. You then notice that the patient's face is newly plethoric. What's going on? This is concerning for a malpositioned venous cannula that is blocking drainage through the superior vena cava. Ask the surgeon to reposition the venous cannula. The surgeon adjusts the venous cannula and the plethora resolves. What should you do during cardiopulmonary bypass? Closely monitor the cerebral oximeters to ensure adequate oxygen delivery to the brain. Watch the cardiac rhythm strip and echocardiogram for signs of cardiac activity. 
Check arterial blood gases and electrolytes every 30 to 60 minutes and treat hyperglycemia, anemia, and acidosis as necessary. Monitor urine output. Start a vasopressor or vasodilator as needed. Finally, prepare for separation from cardiopulmonary bypass. What should you do to prepare for separation from cardiopulmonary bypass? Ensure that any necessary blood products are available. Prepare any anticipated inotropes, vasopressors, and other hemodynamic drips so they are ready once the aortic cross clamp is removed. Ensure that emergency drugs, including heparin, are readily available. Check the temporary pacemaker box to ensure it has adequate battery life and is functioning appropriately. Finally, have a plan for administration of protamine to ensure that it is not given prematurely. After completion of the bypass grafts, the surgeon removes the aortic cross clamp. Now what? Ideally, the heart will quickly resume beating. Start any hemodynamic drips as needed. Check the rhythm strip to ensure that the patient is in a perfusing rhythm, ideally sinus rhythm. Look for widened QRS complexes and ST elevation or depressions. As the heart resumes beating and the flow through the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit is weaned off, the arterial pressure waveform will once again become pulsatile. In coordination with the surgeon, give several large manual breaths to the patient via the ventilator to recruit their lungs and remove air from the heart. Do a thorough echo exam to rule out new abnormalities. Weaning of cardiopulmonary bypass and administration of protamine are uneventful. You start an infusion of dobutamine. The incision is closed. The patient remains intubated and sedated on an infusion of dexmedetomidine. During transport to the intensive care unit, his blood pressure begins to drop. What should you do? Check the rhythm strip and other vital signs for anomalies that could cause hypotension, anomalies such as ventricular tachycardia or hypoxia. Ensure that hemodynamic infusions are actually infusing as intended. When a patient will be transported from the operating room to the intensive care unit intubated and sedated, it is good practice to start the intravenous sedative and turn off any anesthesia gas well in advance of leaving the operating room. This allows you time to adjust in a more controlled setting if the patient becomes hypotensive or starts to wake up as you transition from anesthesia gas to an intravenous sedative. Of course, you should always transport the patient with emergency medications. Beyond the pearls. The anterolateral papillary muscle is perfused by both the left anterior descending and the left circumflex coronary arteries, so it is less susceptible to ischemic dysfunction than is the posterior medial papillary muscle, which is supplied only by the right coronary artery. Patients usually receive dual antiplatelet therapy consisting of a low-dose aspirin and a P2Y12 adenosine diphosphate receptor antagonist such as clopidogrel after placement of coronary stents. The type of stent placed will determine the minimum duration of dual antiplatelet therapy. Platelets lack nuclei, so they cannot produce cyclooxygenase enzymes. Therefore, irreversible inhibition of cyclooxygenase enzymes lasts for the duration of the platelet, which is 5 to 9 days. In cardiac cases, heparin is an emergency medication. In the event of unexpected bleeding or heart failure, it may be necessary to initiate cardiopulmonary bypass emergently. In this scenario, the first thing to do is to give full-dose intravenous heparin. Right ventricular dysfunction may occur after cardiopulmonary bypass. Given the anterior location of the right ventricle within the chest, there is a risk of air emboli down the right coronary artery. Additionally, the right ventricle may not be as well protected during cardiopulmonary bypass due to inadequate cooling or inadequate cardioplegia. If you'd like to learn more about this and other topics, read our book. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.